Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. This morning, uh, we will be talking about worship. How do we worship in a culture that bends towards self? How do we um, uh, engage culture and become a counterformational presence in a place that demands um, ourself? And so, um, before we jump in, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you um, for the ways that you engage us. May we come before you now with open hearts, open minds to what you will have for us this morning. We invite your spirit here. In Jesus' name, amen. So I know um, I hate to burst your happy Thanksgiving. We can start playing Christmas music bubble, but we do have a massive problem um, in our culture, in society. We have a culture that bends towards self. And the point that I want to make this morning is that worship is sacrifice, not selfies. Um, got a little more of a laugh for a service. It's okay. You guys can we're warming up. We're warming up. Um, and so we're going to look at the book of Romans. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Romans 12. There's Bibles in the front here as well. The words will be on the screen. Romans was um, uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, hence Romans, and it was written to the population of Jews and Gentiles. And there was kind of a lot going on between the Jews and the Gentiles. There was um, this recognition of, of Christ is now, Paul is trying to make the argument that Christ is for all of humanity. And the Jews were having a problem with this, as well the Gentiles were having a problem with this, because they lived in a system that was so segregated of those that were with God and those that weren't with God. And so Paul is making an argument here that um, it, not ju- it, it, um, he, he exposes this Christ for all of humanity. And in doing so, if Christ is for all of humanity, then there are problems and conditions in our humanity um, that cover us all, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, but we have human condition problems in us. And so Paul is um, kind of making these points about human conditions. And so we pick up um, in Romans 12, starting in verse 1. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So there's two uh, words that are going to frame Uh, this morning. And if you want to underline them or highlight them or just um, remember them, it's sacrifice and worship. So what is sacrifice in a culture that bends towards self? What is worship then in response to that sacrifice? Did you know that more people are killed by selfies than by sharks? There are more people that die by taking selfies than there are um, being eaten by man-eating sharks in the water. And I think this is just, it's, it's crazy to think about that people are dying taking selfies. And, and we have this, this context of, like, of, of, uh, um, of the self-deprecation, this, um, this idea that worship 
is sacrifice, not selfies. And so what is worship? I'm asking you, what is, what is worship? What is worship to you? Crying? <laughs> what is it? Singing? Singing? Yeah, what else is worship? Amen. There we go. What else is worship? <laughs> worship is so many things. Worship is singing. It's giving our finances. It's social justice. It's generosity. It's our whole life. Um, God created the human race for a purpose. And that purpose was that we would live in relationship with him. The relationship um, is intended to be defined by our mutual love. It's, it's a response to a reality. And so um, worship can be defined as the expression and the outworking of our love for God. So this means more than just singing songs. Um, there's some definitions that we get from the Greek and the Hebrew that says it's the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. The word itself means to give worth to something, to value something, to honor something. It's to fall down, um, like an image of, of meeting a king. And there's also a word that associates it to, um, to kiss. It's, a, it's an action. There's, there's something that is, that is there in an action. But it's also a noun. So we worship, but we also are, are worship. You don't just do worship. You are worship. So our general definition of worship, then, is to fall down, to honor, to ascribe worth, is to sing songs, is to give finances, is to do good, and to live generous. And it's a lot. And so if true and proper worship has something to do with us offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, what does that mean for us? And so when we talk about worship is sacrifice, not selfies, um, we get this idea that uh, um, we have somehow interpreted God's image to be our image. And in the beginning, when in Genesis, the, 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 first, the creation poem in Genesis tells us that we have been created in his image. We are image bearers, whether we like it or not. Choices, though, were made um, and continue to be made that we think that we're in control, that put um, us in charge instead of God. And we, um, we turn our worship from him. So we can look at the whole span of the Bible and we see that the issue isn't whether or not we worship, it's what we worship. Because we all worship something. It's what we choose to worship. It's not a choice between something and nothing. Because to be human is to be a worshiper. So when we stop worshiping God, we don't worship nothing. We worship anything. It's not a switch. It's, a, it's, it's who we are as a human. There's a great quote by N.T. Wright. It says this. He says, you become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. Those who worship money become eventually human calculating machines. Those who worship sex become obsessed with their own attractiveness or prowess. Those who worship power become more and more ruthless. So what happens when you worship the creator God, whose plan to rescue the world and put it to rights has been accomplished by the lamb who was slain? The answer comes in the second golden rule, because you were made in God's image. Worship makes you more truly human. When you gaze in love and gratitude at the God in whose image you were made, you do indeed grow. You discover more of what it means to be fully alive. So where God has expressed his image, we, for some reason, choose to express ours. 
There's a great um, 17th French uh, philosopher, Blaise Pascal. He says this. He says, God made man in his image, and man returned the favor. In many ways, we reveal ourselves. We don't reveal God. And this isn't a new problem, but there, I would say, is a trend that we can all agree is happening, this self-focus, self-admiration. All you have to do is believe in yourself and you can do anything. And there's some great components to that, but there's some unhealthy components that have led us to think that all that we need is ourselves. It's a hyper-self-focused culture, a worship culture of self. It's what researchers have described as the narcissism epidemic. It's a mindset of self-focus. And not all of us are narcissists, but we can find a trend that we're seeing a larger and larger proportion of narcissism. There's a whole scale and a whole test, and they, have this, um, they, have, they put these, all these college students, um, uh, kind of a, a generation of college students through this test, and over the last decade, we've seen like a 40% increase in the scoring of narcissism. And so it's kind of a spectrum, and we're all a part of the spectrum, the self-focused culture. And in a way, it all began in, in good beginnings. There was self-admiration, um, the belief that if you believe in yourself, you're more likely to keep trying, even when you don't su- su- succeed the first time. It's something I tell my daughter. It's like, hey, if you fail, like, it's okay. It doesn't define you. You kind of pick yourself up, and you can do it. As kids in this generation, though, we, raised, we were raised with the belief that you are special. You can do anything. More than any time in history, we've seen that the child's needs have come um, before anything else. We routinely ask our kids, even those too young to even give an answer, what do you want? What do you want for dinner? Do you want to t- talk to your grandma? Do you want to go to the park? Do you want to go to the store? What do you want? And so this has created a problem in us. We, um, we've grown up to be adults, and this is just one example that trends towards the belief and the blend towards self, the bend towards self. There's a five-fold increase in plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures in just 10 years, the growth of celebrity gossip magazines, Americans spending more than they earn and racking up huge amounts of debt, the growing size of houses, the increasing pop- popularity of giving children one-of-a-kind, unique, super-special, no-one-has-them names, polling data um, on the importance of being rich and famous, and the growing number of people who have affairs all point to the fact that we have a trending problem. We may not all be narcissists, but I think we can agree that we live in a culture that bends towards self-focus and self-worship. And we carry this even here on Sundays. We carry these um, focus of ourself and our own expectations and, oh, I wish it was this way, not this way, um, there's a great uh, quote from Dan Lucarini. He wrote a book. Um, he's a former worship leader. He wrote a book called um, Why I Left the Christian Contemporary Music Movement. And in it, he says this. He says, when we try to feel an experience of an affirmation from worship, we are not worshiping God. We are worshiping our own egos. What he's saying is that if we approach worship and expect a positive experience, it's self-worship, and it's really idolatry because We are coming for ourselves, not for God. I didn't feel anything in worship this morning. Worship was good this morning, wasn't it? Worship was okay. I love when they play that song. I wish they would play it this week. I wish blank was leading. You know what worship really needs? It needs more cowbell. (laughs) 
I think that's actually the truth, but um, I'm not completely certain, but I think it's safe to say that this wasn't how God intended us to worship. So if worship is sacrifice and is not selfies, what is sacrifice? What did sacrifice mean to the Israelites in the Old Testament? What did it mean when Jesus came on the scene? And then now what does it mean for us as a people of God bringing the kingdom of God everywhere we go, every day of our lives, to everyone we meet? How many of us were in the book of Leviticus this week? Raise of hands. If you were in the book of Leviticus, you would understand that on your Thanksgiving dinner, all the fat, you would have to save that for sacrifice. So did anyone save their sacrifice for fat today? No? Okay. Um, didn't work in the first service either. Didn't work here. Um, so thank God, though, that Jesus filled, fulfilled the law. We can have fat in Thanksgiving. Um, in all seriousness, no, Leviticus is one of the hardest books in the Bible to read. Um, but it says so much about worship. It's the source of worship for the Israelites. It's really the instruction manual for the Israelites of worship. How do we worship? Well, let me tell you. Um, and yes, there are all these instructions on mold, on fat, on what to wear, how much incense to use. But right at the heart of it all, God says, offer sacrifices. Sacrifice is worship. One author puts it this way. Worship was the heart of Israel's life, and sacrifice was at the heart of Israel's worship. Every time they met in the temple, the place where God dwelled, they offered sacrifices, they offered animals, they offered grain, they offered oil. Every time when they met and offered these things, it went up in smoke. These things in creation, given to them by creation, all went up in smoke. This wealth, literally, their wealth system. These animals were their wealth system. This land was their wealth system. The animals were their 401k. Their oil was their kitchen remodel. Their grain was their savings plan. And it was if they were saying every time they met and they gave these sacrifices and they watched them go up in smoke, it says it was if they were saying, God, you are worth more than creation. It is so easy for us to put our worth in the things are from creation, but you, creator, are the one that we worship. We're not going to be defined by these. As easy as it is, we're not going to be defined by these. And they had great intentions of that. It didn't always work out that way um, for them, but that was the intent of the sacrificial system. So at the temple, these sacrifices would be made. Sins in the temple would be forgiven, atoned for, and they would once again be right with God. And yet, time and time again, they never seemed to get it right or understand it the way God intended. They kept putting up barriers, and the fence kept getting further and further away of what God's intent was from the beginning. That was what worship and sacrifice was like in the Old Testament. It was focused on the sacrifices made in the temple, these temple activities. But we don't have the temple sacrificial system anymore. The New Testament makes it clear that through Christ's death and resurrection, the ultimate sacrifice, there is no longer a need to make ourselves right before God. And I'm glad we don't have the sacrificial system because I don't think Franklin Middle School would like ram's blood, you know, on their stage here. So that's a good thing. Um, and we see this through the scripture, this li the life of Jesus upheaving. I love watching, um, kind of taking back and looking how Jesus is upheaving these ingrained systems, these generational systems that we can, we can get why they wanted to murder Jesus. 
He is changing everything. And so um, one of my favorite pictures of Jesus is found um, in the Gospels. It's a story of him entering Jerusalem, and he comes to the temple, and he cleanses the temple. Um, he's, he fashions this whip, and he overturns the money tables. He's angry at what he's seeing being done at the temple, God's house. And um, you don't have to go there. Um, I do. Um, uh, it'll be on the screen, but if you want to follow along, it's from John 2, verse 13. He says this, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. He found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. It's a mic drop moment right there. Um, The priests that ran the temple saw an opportunity to take advantage, to tip in their favor this sacrificial system. And a lot of times we look at this verse, and I've looked at this verse in the past and think, oh, it's a commercialization of the church. It's not a commercialization. It's not Jesus against the commercialization of the church, and that's not a a good thing either. But what he's really talking about is um, the system that's put in place that is now keeping people from, from... um, from God, that all these animals that they're, they're having to buy to sacrifice, people can't afford these animals. They're even having to change the money tables. This is fascinating. The money tables, they had to change the money because um, according to the, you know, the priest, you couldn't have anything with a graven image on it. So they have these money tables where the exchange rates wouldn't be ideal for the exchange. They have to exchange this, this temple money uh, for, for the, the, the money that they had. And it, it was just it was such a broken System. It was never the intent of what God had planned. Oh, you want to make yourself right before God? Yeah, you can't do that anywhere but the temple. You have to enter the bureaucratic, oppressive system that is set up to line the pockets of the priests and keep you from the presence of God. And then Jesus comes and does only what the temple could do. We see Jesus do this, and he had the audacity to say, your sins are forgiven. He was taking what was a temple activity a temple responsibility, an act of worship, and bringing it to the street. I have a, a brother-in-law, Jair, um, married to my sister, which makes him my brother-in-law. Um, an incredible guy, amazing guy. Um, I had the privilege of, of, um, of officiating their marriage, my sister and my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law has um, had a, a tough life uh, and met many um, obstacles in his path, um, when he was six years old, his parents, he's from Mexico, his parents um, migrated to the United States. They crossed the border illegally. Um, he was six years old at the time. His parents, in, in their view, had no healthy choice for their family but to come to America. Um, Jair is still kind of wrestling with that, with that whole issue. Uh, he was six at the time, so what, what is he going to do? He's, he enters the school system here. Um, he graduates high school. He goes to college here. He is your picture-perfect upstanding citizen, upstanding, um, not a citizen, unfortunately, um, upstanding contributing member of society. Um, and he's tenacious. He um, enters programs that the United States has put together to allow him to work in this country legally. Before that, he, um, he was, uh, could never get a driver's license. It was such an archaic system and 
a, a suppressed system. And you look at the reasons it was built, and, and obviously there's, there's um, intent of why these laws and this system was there. But you see, I see the repercussions of it with someone that I love dearly. And um, he was pulled over multiple times, always got his car towed. Just, he was just struggling, 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 struggling. He gets a work visa. Like I said, he goes to college. Um, he becomes a, a successful, he's a banker. He's a financial planner for a, for a major bank, and all legit. Um, and he's, uh, he's really doing an amazing, amazing job. And, but he's still in this, like, this kind of bureaucratic system. And I thought once they got married, this kind of would go away. But it's, it's years away still for him to get citizenship, even though um, he's married to my sister, and it's, they have a daughter together, all this stuff. So anyways, um, it's, it's a broken system. And he um, got a call from his boss. And he's like, hey, Jai, your, your visa's expiring. You need to make sure you get your visa in, in line. Because like, you, know, you need a visa to work here. He's like, yeah, of course. Like, I've put my paperwork in weeks ago. I should get it in the mail any, any, any day now. And um, his boss um, is still kind of waiting. Like, Jair is getting you know, closer and closer to the date that we, can't, we have to make a decision here. And he's like, no, I'm, it'll come. So he calls the, the immigration office. He's like, hey, I've been, I put my application in, all this stuff. And he's like, I, you know, um, it's just the, the, the system right now. We're changing over from paperless to a paperless system. And fortunately, you're in the backlog of all the papers. Um, so sorry, hashtag sorry, not sorry. Um, there's nothing we can do about it. And um, you're just going to have to wait for it in the mail. He's like, well, I'm going to lose my job if I don't get this in time. He's done everything right for this, this program, and he can't um, get this visa. And so uh, November 4th, I believe it was, is when the day that um, he was going to be fired. Um, he gets called into the office um, that day. And they're waiting by the mail. My sister's literally like um, has uh, baby Josephine, her daughter, in her arms, is waiting for the mail to come. And just like, oh, I, just, I pray that the, the, the visa's in this day's mail. Mail comes. It's not there. Jerry gets called into the office. And he said, sorry, Jerry, you're fired. You can't work here anymore. And so um, he becomes an Uber driver, becomes a Lyft driver. This is just a few weeks ago. Um, becomes a Postmates driver. Um, anything that you do to support his family. Um, it's actually just recently, this last week, that the visa did come. Um, and now he's in the process of, of trying to get his job back and getting his job back. And it looks like it's going to be good. But it's just, you look at the system, and it's so broken. So what point am I trying to make here? When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven circumventing the entire temple system. It's like some stranger walking up to my brother-in-law, handing him a U.S. passport and saying, you have the full citizenship of the United States and all, everything that comes with being a citizen of the United States. Passport, just like, like, like you were born here. That's what is happening. Can you imagine the anger that would happen in this country if U.S. passports started being handed out to illegal aliens? Can you imagine the... The, the anger and the frustration, and that's not fair, and how can you do this? There's a system in place. This is, this is, um, there's, there are laws that we have to follow. And you look at the temple court system, you look at the temple, the pre, the temple system, and you multiply that by a million, the anger that the priests had when Jesus would go around saying, your sins are forgiven. No wonder they wanted to murder him. And then he had the audacity to tell his disciples, hey, you too, you can say to people, your sins are forgiven. He is systematically destroying this entire system that this society has built its wealth, its worth, and its, its presence on. 
And so um, Jesus disrupts the temple system. He overturns tables. And we, we see for a moment the sacrificial system stop. And you know, as soon as Jesus left, they got the tables back in order. They started sacrificing the animals again. But for that moment, we see it stop. And we see Jesus, what he's doing here, he's doing something significant. He's putting the temple under judgment. And he's saying, this system is no longer needed. This system, this temple, I will tear down and I will rebuild it in three days. And he's talking about himself. He's talking about his life. He's talking about his resurrection. He doesn't condemn it in a way, but he says, I will raise it up again. He, doesn't, he says, what you've made the temple, I'm condemning. But the temple, he will raise up again. He becomes the temple. He becomes what and how we worship. And when we understand that, we have Christ in us, that we, our bodies, our temples, to the living God, things get exciting. The temple was God's way of giving us a signpost to the true reality of what came in Jesus. Jesus came and offered a radical alternative to the temple. It's as if he was saying, what you have in me is the reality to where the temple pointed. So worship then has something to do with carrying the reality of the temple and the temple activities wherever we go. If Jesus says to his disciples and those that know him that you can forgive the sins of others, that means the temple goes with us. God dwells wherever we are. Worship means God shows up. So then after Jesus' death, what was the context of the early church and how they worshipped? What was competing for their worship? This is after Jesus' death. Um, There was an annual tradition in the first century that every citizen of Rome would take part in. If you were a good Roman citizen, this was a ceremony that you would go to to pledge your allegiance to Caesar. You would go to this um, before the governing officials and you would take incense and you would throw it in the fire and you would say, Caesar is Lord. You would get a certificate that said um, you have, uh, you know, done your duty, you have uh, said that Caesar is Lord, you, you know, there's, there's financial consequences to that as well, but there's, there's, a, there's a recognition that you understand how this system works. And we have to understand that, that um, in, in Rome, there was a whole pantheon uh, uh, of gods. There was a god for everything. They even had a statue to a god of the unknown god in case they forgot one. And so you see that there wasn't really an issue with worshiping Caesar. You could worship whatever you wanted, but as long as you also pledged your worship to Caesar. It wasn't necessary to even believe or mean what you said. You just had to do this as a customary practice. You could do this and then live however you wanted the rest of the year. So the issue wasn't that you chose to worship Jesus. You could worship whatever you wanted, but you must include your worship of seizure. Caesar. 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 How long have I been saying seizure? Um, the issue with first century Christians that were martyred and murdered was that Jesus was the only one they worshipped, thus denying Caesar as Lord. Worship then for the first century Christian was an act of political disobedience, political and civil disobedience. Literally sacrificing your life, worshiping God, even to your death. It's as if the system at the time was saying, you can worship your Jesus, but make sure you include your worship 
of Caesar. You can worship your Jesus, but make sure you know how this world really works. You can worship your Jesus, but don't disrupt the structures and the culture of this life. Today, we might hear, you can worship your Jesus, but make sure it doesn't offend anyone around you. How are we doing? (laughs) You can worship your Jesus, but make sure you keep it private. We even say this to each other in church. You can worship Jesus, but just don't be weird about it. And so we start believing this. We start living this way. We start manufacturing our own image, the one given to us by God so we don't offend, we don't disrupt, we stay safe and secure in the knowledge that we um, can just worship ourselves. And we start turning this on ourselves. Jesus, I want to worship you, but I don't want to be embarrassed. Jesus, I want to worship you, but I don't want to share my faith with other people. Jesus, I want to worship you, but I'm much more comfortable with you being an accessory to my life that I get to pick and choose when I get to be with you and not be with you. We start making a temple of self-sacrifice. We want to continue doing the same things that disengage us and destroy us, but we don't want him to mess up the rest of our lives. So let me read this this verse over you again. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. One translation uh, from N.T. Wright's Kingdom New Testament says this. It says, don't let yourselves be squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age. This present age that says you are what you do, an age of masks, an age of curated profiles, photoshopped, filtered beauty, of security and 401ks and status and reputation, our legacies, an age of self-worship, This is the age that we are in. So then if true and proper worship is sacrifice, what does sacrifice look today in the midst of self-worship? What are the traditions in our culture where we, like those in the first century, need to refuse to burn incense to Caesars? What is worship, how is worship in our lives, the temple activities, a counter-formational practice that invites the kingdom of God into our everyday moments? Where in the temple that is our bodies and our lives does Jesus need to overturn some tables? These are the questions that I I hope you will take with you and that you will be discussing in your community groups and in your your circles. I think we all need to take a reflective look at what has filled our temple courts. Um, And here's how this, kind of a silly example, this is how this played out for me this week. Um, Here's my honey-do list um, that my lovely, beautiful wife has given me. Um, This is one list of many lists that I have, but I have all these things I have to get done. We have doctor's appointments. I have to paint the baby's room. Uh, Craigslist items up. Insurance. We've got a breast pump. Yay for that. Um, not embarrassing. So fine. Uh, we got a we got a floor. I got to do I got I got to do floors in our room now. Um, I put up address numbers. Actually, I got to cross that off. I did that. Um, clean out the bin of papers by my bed. I am a I'm a I love like piles. I'm a piler. Who are the pilers? Who is this? An amen. Yeah, look at all the pilers. Yes. Um, 
I'm a piler. I'm like, it's an organized mess. It's like, you don't need to know my organizational system. I know where everything is. If you organize it, I'm going to be so messed up. But my wife is a professional organizer, so um, we kind of butt heads sometimes. I'm her, I'm her best or worst client in one way. I think I keep her on her toes. I keep her, like, sharp. Um, and so um, why am I sharing this list with you? Um, these activities, because I, I love working with my hands. I love being... Um, kind of absorbed in a project. I love creating. I love um, seeing, starting something and not knowing a clue. I don't know how to lay floors. I don't, I don't have no idea, but I, I'll YouTube it. I'll become an expert in it. I will, um, uh, you know, I'll do everything I can. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I pretend I know what I'm doing, and that's the biggest part. Um, but I can get so lost in this. Um, uh, I love creating things. I love making things. My temple is my life. Our, temp, our, our lives are, we, we have a temple of our life. We have, we have a temple presence everywhere we go. And we can mark, if you look at my life, hour by hour, week by week, you'd see a lot of time devoted to projects. You'd see a lot of time devoted to lists. And lists aren't a bad thing. Honeydew lists are definitely not a bad thing, um, especially if you ask my wife. Um, and those are good things. But when I become so focused on this list that I lose myself in it, I begin turning to worship of other things. I begin thinking that this is, I, I'm, I'm master of my own creation. I miss out on moments with my daughter. I miss out on moments with my wife. I miss out on moments of, of um, worshiping God because I, I, I literally spend hours and hours on these things. And so, sorry, it needs to be sacrificed. Sorry, babe, it needs to be sacrificed. No more list. Um, and so, and this is what wrecked me. This is, what, this is, this is for me, um, and this is what I heard from my soul. And we're each going to have a, a an own reflection of what are, the, what are the tables that we've set up? What are the things that have gotten in the way of our worship of Jesus? And I heard this. It said, I heard, does the world need more fathers getting lists done? Or does the world need more fathers who choose worship of the one who created the heavens and the earth? And I was like, oh, okay. I'm not going to do the list this week. I'm going to practice Sabbath again. Remind myself Sabbath is so important. We got to, um, yeah, I'll talk about this a little later, but we, we got to... Um, kind of get an early edition of this devotional, Advent devotional, and I got to redo a new list. So we had a list this week of things that our family was thankful for, and that replaced the list of things that I needed to get done. It was such a healthy uh, turn of what true and proper worship is, because true and proper worship is response. It's an answer. It's a voice in the world that says it doesn't have to be this way. It's our lives reflecting like a mirror, God, wherever we go. Worship is and always has been subversive. Like for the first century Christians, it was a political and civil act of disobedience. It is subversive. It is meant to subvert is to use images and words and stories to tell a better and a different story. It's political. It's social. It's physical. It's not just listening to the fish on our way to work. It's not labeling it Christian music. It's not a warm-up for Sunday mornings to get um, whoever's talking amped up, like, hey, let's do this. It's not what it's for. It's not something that leaves us happy. It's not something that we say, oh, I just need, you know, uh, if I could just feel happy in this moment and leave with it. With it. And there's, there's things that we get from worship and singing together that obviously are good, but that's not what worship is. God is after our hearts. Singing is an amazing part of worship. Of course, it's a corporate celebration. Regardless of the circumstances of life that we're in, 
where we stand and worship in truth, reminding each other when we forget of his goodness. It's a time where we get to raise our hands when we don't feel like raising our hands at all. It's posture. It's, it's aligning ourselves with, with what God and who God is. But even then, if we're saying that worship, even if we're taking it to a, a kind of simple level of worship on Sundays, most of us are missing out on worship on Sundays. We, we're not here to, to even worship together as a community, all of us. And so if we can't even worship together as a community and singing songs, how are we going to expect to reflect God with our lives and have worship be a reflection of our lives? And so um, uh, anything that gets in the way of that, we need to lay down. Um, the Lord is over all, and we lay down any idol, including ourselves, that get in the way of that reality. Um, we need to cleanse the temple in our lives. In a way, we need Jesus to upturn some tables we've set up, systems that we've put in place that have made worship about ourselves instead of the sacrifice of our whole lives in order to be a counterformational presence in this world. So as we close, I have a a few thoughts. Some of us this morning are realizing the ways that we worship ourselves. And I'm in that boat with you. Um, I also think there's people that we feel that we're in two different boats, that our feet are in two different boats. And we kind of, we kind of hope that the boats kind of stay together. But oftentimes life happens and we have to make a choice. And that boat of, of the world and the boat of the worship, true God of Jesus, are going to go two different ways. And we're, it's either going to rip us in two or we're going to need to jump on the boat that is really going to save us. Our worship doesn't look like sacrifice. It looks like self-focus. It looks like preference. It looks, looks like convenience. And the world, unfortunately, wants you to worship yourself, your sexuality, your access, your success, your agenda, your resources in your life, your friendships, celebrities, athletes, our political preferences, your job, your family, your life on social media. Culture wants you to worship what makes you feel comfortable, what makes you feel safe, what makes you feel good. It becomes what we value as a society. So then what is the counterformational practice? It's to worship God. It's to worship him every day, everyone we meet, in every place that we go. And um, this Advent devotional, it's not a coincidence that we're starting this, um, and talking about worship. Unless, that, unless we enter into worshiping fully, unless our identity is rooted in a relationship that God desires with us, that is a two-way communication, a two-way relationship, we expect, the Israelites, every time they worshiped, they expected God to show up. And every time they worshiped, God showed up. And every time that God expected Israel to worship, he showed up. It was like this, this two-way communication, this, this expression of a relationship like a marriage. I can say that I'm married to my wife, but unless it's expressed in, in unique ways, in, in talking, in, um, in dating, in, in um, getting lists done, and all the things that kind of form our marriage, it's, it's nothing without that experience. And worship is a way to experience God. And so... Um, Advent has been a church tradition for many centuries. It has allowed us to prepare our bodies, our minds, our hearts for the celebration of the birth of Jesus. So we take this devotion seriously. And there are a couple things that are, are in here um, that uh, are, are a great practice 
and that we have an opportunity to t do together as a community, as a family, not just for ourselves, but for our neighbors and for our coworkers and for our friends and, our, and those around us that need to experience what it means to see someone worship fully with their lives. So there's a couple options. I think they're going to be on the screen that are in this book. We can practice this week. We practice thankfulness. We write down 10 things each day that we're thankful for. We practice inviting the Holy Spirit into our ordinary moments of your day. So often we look for these mountaintop experiences and these worship experiences where emotions are drawn out, and those happen, but it's really in the everyday moments where we need God to show up, where we can worship him in the simple. We can worship him changing diapers. We can worship him when we're washing dishes. We can worship him when we're um, driving down the street. We can worship him when we're at our jobs, in our cubicles, or in our classrooms. We can worship him fully with our lives. So it's we invite the Spirit into those simple moments. And see, we practice meditating and singing songs of worship to God. This allows us to align our hearts to the reality of who God is. And so as we close, um, I want to read. Can we all actually can we stand together? Can we just hold out our hands as a posture of receiving? We can close our eyes so we're not distracted. This isn't something that be done by our own will. It's not how God wants us to worship, by forcing it into our lives. He wants it to transform our lives. And so it's an invitation. It's an invitation. And there's some things that obviously um, can be sacrificed and let go of. How do we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice that is being worked out through us? But I want to leave you with um, Eugene Peterson's interpretation of this verse, the message, um, Romans 12, 1. It says this, So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your eyes and attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you. He develops a well-formed maturity in you. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.